0: This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. God is so unfair. Jesus tells three parables today, and each one shows God being unfair. What is up, for instance, with the shrewd steward who cheats his boss and then gets praised for it? What's up with the rich man who enjoys food and drink like you and I do? And Jesus doubles down and then quadruples down on the torment he deserves for eternity? Then there are the laborers, some slave all day in the hot sun, some just barely do any work at all, and they all get exactly the same wage, making Jesus, what, some kind of socialist? Well, also look at a smart guy who says there is no hell for precisely the sorts of reasons I'm outlining here, and then I'll get real for a bonus minute or two, uh, so let's start right away. I'm going to start with the perplexing parable of the shrewd steward which is in Luke. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a steward and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. And he called him and said to him, what is it that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your stewardship for you can no longer be my steward. And the steward said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the stewardship away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that people may receive me into their houses when I am put out of the stewardship. So, summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly and write fifty. And he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest steward for his prudence. For the sons of this world are wiser in their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous mammon, so that when it fails they may receive you into eternal habitations. He who is faithful in very little is faithful also in much, and he who is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful, In the unrighteous mammon, who will entrust you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. All right, so that last line is a blast from the past. We heard that once before. In fact, a couple of the lines in this parable show up in various places. So we'll leave those aside and make the observation that great teachers have the ability to make difficult things simple so that you can understand them right away. But the greatest teachers also give you lessons that you have to sit with and ponder because the lessons you personally discover sink even more deeply into your soul than the ones that are handed to you. Jesus, the master teacher, does both. We heard how he told complicated lessons in a simple way in the parables of the lost sheep, lost coin, and prodigal son. But now we get a lesson we have to sit with and ponder. The parable of the shrewd steward. You know it's hard to grasp because Jesus has to explain what it means. He draws several lessons from it, especially a lesson about money and a lesson about our task as disciples. To grasp what this parable means... Let's start by retelling it in modern terms, because Jesus is telling a story here, which at first glance does not seem to be at all relevant to modern times. He's talking about a steward who works for a rich master who is engaged in lending money in an agricultural society, where his clients pay him in wheat and olive oil. Like ours, that economy was rife with corruption, with even scripture complaining about merchants ready to mess with their measurements and manipulate their scales. But actually, I think you can get a pretty good picture of what's going on here if you compare the situation in the parable to the truly wicked payday loans operations that prey on people desperate for money by demanding outrageous interest rates. And so, you could retell the story this way. A payday loans owner heard that the manager of one of his locations was wasting his money. The owner exploded in rage during a Zoom meeting. You're fired. I'm coming next week to get your final accounts, and then you're out. The manager knew he would have a hard time getting another job in town after cheating so many people and then getting fired for cause. But he simultaneously realized that he was already in maximum trouble and had nothing to lose. So he called his clients in one by one. One worker was paying $75 twice a month to cover just the interest on a $500 loan? He said, here, sign a new agreement that puts your payments toward principal. He brought in other longtime customers with similarly terrible deals and did the same. For customers acquired recently, he cut their interest rates down from predatory rates to market rates. Now he had a good reputation in town and friends he could rely on. When the owner came in to fire him, he had to admit the manager was smart to handle the situation that way. All right, so does that make more sense? It does for me. And once you understand the story like that, the lesson about money becomes very clear. This manager treated money like it should be treated. Money is supposed to be a means to an end. What end? The good of a community. His master, the owner of the payday loans, treated money in the wrong way. He used the community as a means to get money for himself. The manager in the end acted morally. He didn't steal money. If anything, he stopped stealing money. He didn't try to hold on to his lucrative job. He didn't see money as the purpose of his life. He saw it as a means to giving and receiving charity and for making a future for himself. By canceling out the predatory interest rates, he took a sledgehammer to the idol mammon wealth. He made money his servant rather than serving it. Better, he forced mammon to serve the common good, which includes his good, and which is ultimately God's. And don't miss the even more important spiritual lesson of the parable. My retelling of the parable differs in one major way from Jesus's. I used examples from a payday loans company I heard from a lawyer on the board of directors of Benedictine College who is fighting these companies. But Jesus tells exaggerated tall tales often. And the amounts of goods Jesus speaks of in this particular parable are enormous, 900 gallons of olive oil and 100 acres of wheat. They're untold riches, not a typical debt of the time. In fact, it's even suggested that Jesus is being humorous in this tall tale. But the spiritual lesson in each is that souls are worth far more to God than money is to us. Each soul is worth a Herculean effort of mercy to welcome them back into God's good graces. Apply that analogy to the parable of the shrewd steward, and suddenly, the steward in the parable is not a keeper of economic goods, but of spiritual goods. All of our spiritual goods are actually God's, and we're all guilty of squandering them. He gave us time to pray. We spent it on entertainment and idleness. He gave us words of faith to share. We kept them to ourselves. He made us capable of serving others. We found ways to make others serve us instead. And now we have heard the news from the gospel that God is coming back and we will be fired. Then we will be in way more trouble than the steward in the parable If we are as shrewd as he is, we should be scrambling to do what we can before it's too late. We will start forgiving people, start sharing the boss's grace far and wide. To use Jesus' language, we are children of the light, and if we want to be welcomed into eternal dwellings, we had better show ourselves trustworthy in very small matters. So let's not let him down. But that brings me to my next parable, the rich man and Lazarus. This is also in Luke. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, full of sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things, and now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus tells a parable here, or perhaps a true story, that we can easily apply to ourselves in America today, unfortunately. The story certainly sounds like a parable, but Jesus never names people in his other parables, He doesn't name the rich man in this one. Tradition calls him divas, which just means rich man. But Jesus does name the poor man in the parable, Lazarus, who is lying at the door covered with sores and would gladly have eaten his fill of the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. When they both die, the tables are turned. It is Lazarus who is joyful and the rich man who is in torment. Jesus' story is like a case study showing how heaven flips the priorities we had on earth. Devis dressed in rich garments and fine linen and dined sumptuously each day and lived apart from his father and five brothers. As St. Ambrose said about this passage, quotes, Not all poverty is holy or all riches criminal. End it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. And in the story, it is the luxurious lifestyle of the rich man who, quotes, dressed in purple garments and fine linen and dined sumptuously every day that doomed him. As for Lazarus, his humility saves him. Jesus provides an interesting detail. Dogs even used to come and lick his sores. Those dogs sympathized with him and cared for him, says St. Cyril of Alexandria, proving that the rich man was crueler than the dogs. St. Jerome piled on the negative assessments of the rich man, saying, Most wretched of men, you see a member of your own body lying there outside at the gate, And have you no compassion? Next, we get Jesus' very own description of what heaven and hell are like. Look at the different way Jesus describes what happens after the death of each man. On the one hand, when the poor man died, he was carried away by angels to the bosom of Abraham. On the other hand, the rich man also died and was buried. The poor man is borne aloft by angels. The rich man gets covered in dirt and left alone. Then we get Jesus' own description of hell. He says the rich man finds himself in the netherworld, or Hades, where he is in torment, and now a chasm that can't be crossed separates him from the poor man. In fact, Jesus describes his condition as torment four times. Being in torment, Devas lifted up his eyes. He said, cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Abraham says to him, you are in anguish. And Devis wants to warn his family lest they come into this place of torment. So Jesus quadruples down on the torments of hell. And then Devis raised his eyes and saw Abraham and far off and Lazarus at his side. So the rich man was the one on the inside in life. Lazarus is the one on the inside now, where the rich man is now in Lazarus's place. It was probably difficult in life for the poor man to have to see the rich man's luxury. And so now it is difficult in the afterlife for the rich man to have to see the poor man's happiness. On earth, Lazarus hoped for crumbs from the rich man, and the rich man hopes for a drop of water now from him. Poor people fade into obscurity in our world. They live their lives in small homes, use public transportation, and while the rich live large and travel in style. Not even the deaths of poor people are much noted, Well, everybody notices the rich people. In heaven, it's the opposite. Lazarus is huge in heaven. Abraham knows his name and he sits in a place of honor while the rich man begs to get his attention and fails. This is the logic of the Beatitudes. Those who seek only material fulfillment get it. Those who seek more than that get that. But let's apply this to our century, shall we? I once wrote an article about this passage with the tongue-in-cheek title, Dare We Hope That the Rich Who Ignore Those Suffering on Their Doorstep Will Be Saved? I was playing with the title of a work by the truly great theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar. He wrote the book, Dare We Hope That All Men Be Saved. It makes a number of great points. First, we honestly don't know whether or not any particular person is in hell. Second, we should not actively desire for anyone to be there. God doesn't. God desires everyone to come to Him. So should we. So third, we have to be able to intellectually see that it could be the case that our hope is true, that everyone is saved. That's my understanding of the book anyway. Maybe I'm getting it wrong. But he is on to something significant there. But I fear that in our day of waning belief in hell, repeating this dare-we-hope thought quickly turns into the thought, whew, I knew it. The whole hell thing is BS after all. So my title, Dare We Hope That the Rich Who Ignore the Suffering on Their Doorstep Will Be Saved, is my ironic take on that. Because people have a really hard time thinking wealthy oppressors of the poor will go from the life of earthly luxury blowing off the poor at their doorstep to a life of heavenly bliss and beatitude for all eternity with a job well done. Jesus doesn't think that will happen. And if you recall the episode on hell, Pope Francis doesn't think so either. I quoted a warning mafiosos about hell and then warning all those of us who live in greed and luxury, forgetting the poor, about hell also. And this is probably a good time to bring up some of those who argue against hell. David Bentley Hart, the Orthodox Christian philosopher who took on fashionable God deniers in his 2009 book, Atheist Delusions, joined up with fashionable hell deniers in his 2019 book, That All Shall Be Saved. There he takes on the kind of answer I gave before. God is good and hell is real because God didn't create human puppets who do his will, but free souls capable of love. And freedom to love entails freedom to not love. To this kind of explanation, though, Hart counters, it is simply obvious that under normal conditions, we recognize any self-destructive impulse in any person as a form of madness. It makes no more sense then, To say that God allows creatures to damn themselves out of his love for them, or out of his respect for their freedom, than to say a father might reasonably allow his deranged child to thrust her face into a fire out of a tender regard for her moral autonomy. That's a powerful image. But is it true? No, it is not. In fact, we don't really regard all or even most self-destructive impulses as madness. I should eat healthily. I don't. That is self-destructive, but it isn't crazy. I should regulate my time better. I should exercise more. I should build habits of virtue and not habits of sin. I fail in all of these things and feel the pain they cause, but I'm not insane. Hart says it is absurd to imagine a sane person choosing eternal loneliness and torment rather than eternal love and bliss. But that's not how it happens at all. We don't choose loneliness. We choose selfishness, then become lonely. We choose not to help our neighbor, but to do our own thing instead and then find ourselves friendless. We choose to not even try to control our temper and find our family distancing themselves from us. We choose not to control our appetites and find ourselves trapped in addictions. We choose to lie and find that no one trusts us. Are we free to do otherwise? Absolutely. We described last episode how we are surrounded by the goodness, beauty, and truth that is poured into our lives at every moment. Announcing God's presence everywhere at all times. But we often either ignore his gifts or steal them away to use for sin instead of good. C.S. Lewis warns The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. End quote. And that's when I need to bring up something about the rich man's story. Devis isn't just rich, he is preoccupied with what he wears dressed in purple garments and fine linen, and eats sumptuously each day, maxing out what he gives his taste buds. Meanwhile, he apparently ignores the poverty right outside his gate in the person of Lazarus. This story should hit home powerfully. Many Americans are also obsessed with what they wear and eat. Meanwhile, much of the world lives in poverty, and people are dying in our neighborhoods in growing numbers and deaths of despair, while others are losing their faith at a record pace. Does that make us like the rich man in the parable? He's not damned for doing the wrong thing. He's damned for doing nothing. Benedictine College economics professor Rick Coronado recently described a conversation he had with a parish priest about our lifestyles here in the West. Quote, He believed that active decisions to sin, such as the decision to be greedy, did happen, of course, but that was not the path to sin for most people. Rather, it was the simple urge to be comfortable, to make life easier for oneself and one's family, concupiscence in a word. That simple impulse pursued day in and day out over the course of a lifetime he had learned, unless challenged constantly, resulted in people slowly sliding away from their spiritual life and neglecting their duties to others in their neighborhood and civically. End quote. Even if some of us feel like we wouldn't ignore Lazarus, the fact is we pretty much have to ignore Lazarus. First, we go into debt pursuing pleasures, which seem normal to us. Then, as debt payments mount, we lose the ability to spend money on charity. We have to worry and work for our debt more and more. And then, we escape into more pleasures to deal with the anxiety. Soon, we are dressing nicely and eating sumptuously each night, so preoccupied with ourselves that we can't see people in pain. The Catechism says, The Lord grieves over the rich because they find their consolation in the abundance of goods. It also says, All Christ's faithful are to direct their affections rightly, lest they be hindered in their pursuit of perfect charity. Says St. Jerome, The rich man in purple splendor is not accused of being greedy or of carrying off the property of another or of committing adultery or in fact, any wrongdoing. The evil alone of which he is guilty is pride, But let's leave the rich man and Lazarus to their fates, and let's move on to a third parable, the laborers in the vineyard. This one is actually from Matthew. For the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the steward, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one of them received a denarius. Now, when the first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the householder, saying, These last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. So in this third and last parable for the day, The Lord himself takes away the veil of our human understanding to show us what is really happening spiritually to us on earth. The gospel begins, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out at dawn to hire laborers for his vineyard. If we think of Jesus as waiting patiently for us to honor him, we're wrong. In fact, Jesus himself takes the initiative. He's up early looking for us, approaching us, inviting us, like the prodigal's father. But when he finds us, he sends us to his vineyard, not to enjoy a reward, but to get to work. Next, going out about nine o'clock, the landowner saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you too go into my vineyard, and I will give you what is just. Again, we see how Jesus deals with people. The world says, you snooze, you lose. If you're not ready when you should be, you're out of luck. Not so with Jesus. He comes again and again. And at the end of the day, when he says to us what he says to these laborers, why do you stand here idle all day? He wants us to work for his glory, telling others about him, serving others' needs, praying and offering sacrifices. Only after that can we imagine any kind of heavenly reward. When it comes time to pay the laborers, the gospel reveals more of what God is like. He gives those who worked for one hour the same pay as those who worked throughout the day. God doesn't reward us according to our accomplishments, but according to our obedience. The laborers in the story, and we who read about them, have the same question. How can this possibly be fair? So here's a quick answer. Because each laborer did very little, and the pay for each was an eternal mansion in heaven? But that's going to require a little bit of explanation. We're accustomed to hearing this gospel and thinking about wages the way we experience them on earth. We work for eight hours, we get paid for eight hours. But when we apply the parable to the spiritual life, we need to think about it totally differently. The work we do for our earthly employer contributes to our employer's livelihood. In our spiritual life, the work we do for God contributes to us and gives nothing to Him. Says the Catechism, We can have merit in God's sight only because of God's free plan to associate man with the work of His grace. Merit is to be ascribed, in the first place, to the grace of God, and secondly, to man's collaboration. Man's merit is due to God, end quote. So our work means nothing unless it is God who puts us to work. But even more importantly, the wages we are given for God's work are far and above what we get paid for earthly work. The heavenly wages are so great that Paul had to admit that he longed for death because it would bring him those wages, he hoped. He says, quote, For to me, life is Christ and death is gain. I do not know which I shall choose. I am caught between the two. I long to depart this earth and be with Christ, for that is far better. And yet, that I remain in the flesh is more necessary for your benefit. Paul wants to keep working in the vineyard in order to spread the faith on earth, but he also wants the wages that follow in heaven. So, what are those wages? They're what Lazarus found. They are the ultimate storm home outside the maze. They are the new heavens and new earth. That is a fine wage, no matter how much we've worked. But Jesus makes it clear that what needs to be done here is work. We will have to do work to earn the wage. Industrious stewards and migrant vineyard workers get it. Rich idlers like Devis don't. And if I can be real here for a moment... One thing I'm committed to doing in The Extraordinary Story is saying things that are often left unsaid, often things that I'd rather not say. It's easy when talking about parables, though, to slip into storybook land and say things that feel a little unreal. And I hope it's okay for me to do this. I honestly would rather not. But let me say it. Idlers don't just relax on earth and waste personal opportunities. Our culture's idleness leads to hell on earth, Because hell is the everlasting boredom of those who are too lazy to love. Let's not forget what the world is actually like right now. Mexican bishops recently worried that their own nation was in the grip of hell as drug cartels became increasingly fiendish, decapitating bodies and hanging them from billboards. We see the same morbidity elsewhere. Terrorist militants all over the world are like grim reapers with their robe off and turn their killings into twisted fantasies of death and we aren't much better off in America. Do a news search of those who have been sentenced to prison recently in your community, and you'll find a heartbreaking list of stories about child molestation, rape, and killing, to say nothing of mass shootings. And it's no wonder. Leading movies and shows dwell on gruesome violence. In video games, we play act mass destruction. Hollywood horror franchises have descended into bizarre new depths and depicting orgies of death. Captain America is an icon of America, as he and his band blandly mow down opponents while casually making social plans? They perfectly depict our bored interest in killing. Our culture has become so desensitized to death that reports of infanticide and botched abortions and Planned Parenthood selling body parts seem to make no impact. This is what an idle culture looks like, when boredom becomes the biggest fear and entertainment the greatest commodity, and first hope and then conscience goes which is what hell looks like, giant boredom wallowing in death. The choice to love is the choice to break out of yourself and give yourself to others. Do that, and you meet Jesus Christ, the author of life himself. The choice to do nothing is the decision to ignore Jesus in himself and in his image all around us? Do that, and many are soon aping the grotesque actions of Satan, the author of death. But enough of that. Sin and hell are real, but so are heaven and grace. All that is asked is to do a little work and then get paid exorbitantly, far more than we deserve. Together, these parables tell us that our faith life is more like a day at work than a day of rest. The joy of heaven will be like the rest you feel at the end of a busy day, not like the continuation of a perpetual vacation. Jesus is asking each of us, why do you stand here idle all day? We can't say because no one has hired us, He has said to us already in our baptism, you too go into my vineyard. So there are your three extraordinary parables. We'll be leaving parables aside for a bit. We will step away from those lines, there was a man. Jesus always seems to begin so many parables with there was a man. With those words, he means to indicate each of us. There was a woman, or there was a boy, or there was a girl, or let's go with, there was one lowly person. Each of our lives will be summed up at the judgment, not by our good feelings, but by how we actually conducted our lives. In our life, what words will follow? There was one lowly person. There was one lowly person who grabbed what she could and got what she wanted and wrote her own dead-end story. Or will it be, there was one lowly person who gave all she could to add her own creativity and energy to the greatest story of all, Jesus Christ's extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about The Extraordinary Story.